dear humans, welcome to a, another episode of the Ten Laws podcast with East Forest. I am Seth East Forest. I'm coming to you today from Sacramento. I am on the 16th floor of a lovely Sheridan Hotel. Thank you, Tim. Because I'm playing here tonight, but when this comes out uh, on, t- on a Tuesday, if you're listening to this in a timely manner, I will be in Marin, California on the 11th. So lots of gigs happening right now, and you know, so we'll be cruising down to uh, Esalen for the retreat, which is sold out, but you can go over to the Mammoth Yoga Festival in Mammoth, or we'll be down in Santa Barbara and Laguna, just added San Diego on June 27th, and that'll be wrapping up the West Coast leg of this tour. But things continue after that. Check it out, eastforest.org slash tour. Uh, so, hey, Esalen sold out. I've heard from a few of you, you you wanted to come, but you can come to the fall retreat in southern Utah. There are still a few spots left for that. We've got all the information over at eastforest.org on the retreat tab, videos and, and testimonials, just to kind of see if it fits your fits your bill and if you're feeling the call to step out to that. We'd love to see you. So sign up because that usually sells out as we move closer to it. It's sort of a limited size, and we like to keep it uh, that magical size and intimacy. Chapter three of the Ramdas record is coming out really soon here on the solstice, which is June twenty first. Uh, it's a Friday, and there's going to be three new songs. We got a couple really exciting new featured guests on that. We got Stick Stickman from Dead Prez is on a song called Electronic Sea. That talks about technology, which is not something Ram Dass talks much about, but I think is very relevant to today. We have Laura Bird of the Mina Birds on a song called Soul Land that gets into the idea of us being like, well, what it means to be that energy of soul land and the idea of having a soul pod that you're with infinitely. And it's just a really lovely energy. And then there's also a song about death that's called like taking off an old shoe, a.k.a. death. So for the, the deep Ram Dass heads, you're going to know that phrase because that's something he said in his talks, which I, I love that phrase about uh, a description of death, like taking off an old shoe. <laughs> but he's like, but birth, oh, birth is very challenging. Very hard, a lot of work. Death, no sweat, kicking off that old shoe. Feels good. I'm not trying to make it glib, but it's a beautiful song. And so there's some summer energy as we're moving into the summer solstice with these next songs. Uh, Some of them have some beats. Some of them have some groove. And it's all part of putting together this 14-song album that's going to be the full Ram Dass record that will culminate. That full record will come out and some more new songs on August 9th with Chapter 4, which is the complete record. So if you'd like to host a listening gathering, which is really just an excuse for you yourself or you and your friends or your partner, or open it up to your community at large to say, hey, why don't you come over and you can make the event whatever you want, but we'll basically give you the music, the lyrics, some discussion questions, maybe a talk of Ram Dass's that relates to the subject matter in these new songs if you want to like listen to that. It's just ways to dive into these subjects that Ram Dass is putting out there and to meet the others, to meet each other, to spend time together. So you can email us, uh, Isabel 
at newlevel.com. That's new, the number three, wlevel.com or info at eastforest.org and we'll, we'll hook you up. Hey, look, I'm sorry to those. I had to cancel a show. I had to cancel the show in South Bay this uh, last Saturday in the San Francisco Bay area. Uh, I, I don't want to get into the details of it because it's like a long nuanced story where it just, at the end of the day, you know, you guys are coming out, spending your money and your time, and I want to give you the full thing, the full experience. And so I just want to feel that I can trust that what I'm going to be able to do for you and deliver is going to be the best that I can and that you guys can and can not feel like you're not getting maybe what I, it's just, it's just a vibe thing like that. And so we had to make that call the day of, which is never happened before for me, other than that Ithaca show I had to cancel, but that one I was barfing my brains out. So really sorry about that. Um, you can, of course, get refunds, and we emailed the ticket holders about that. Um, but I'll do my best to make it up for you, and my apologies. But looking forward to all the other shows going on out there. It's been wonderful to meet you guys face-to-face. I've heard some some really beautiful stories about folks who've had um, different experiences with the Music for Mushrooms record. And of course, um, the experiences you've been having the last six months or so with the Ramdas material that's out there. And it feel it still feels so fresh for me and vibrant. So i just looking forward to this summer and bringing this thing to a culmination. And I'm loving how it's all coming together. So we're, we're, we're doing lots of different dates and things are being added. So keep track on social media or on my website and we'll let you know. Or even better, get on the email list and we'll just email you when we're coming to your city. Today, I have a conversation with Lee McCormick. So Lee's someone that I met through my girlfriend, Rada, and she's been working with Lee for years, many years, maybe 10 or something. They've been hosting retreats in Mexico. There's a uh, sacred site there called Teotihuacan. I might be pronouncing that incorrectly. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue but it's a, a very large, complex uh, Toltec site. Sorry if I'm getting any of this wrong. I'm actually thinking of going to the retreat. They're doing, they're doing another retreat in July, mid-July this year. So coming up. And I think I might go. Just as, just as me, a dude. I'm not going to play. I very rarely travel if I'm not touring. Because when I'm not touring, I don't want to go anywhere. But this one, after I spoke to Lee in this conversation, I don't know. I got this hit like... Maybe there's something for me about just being on this site and um, doing some work because we all got to do the work, right? Um, I, you know, it's one thing to be out there preaching and proselytizing, so to speak, but it's really important for me too to be doing my work so that I have somewhere to be standing and something something to stay say from my own experience. So Rada, I, a long time ago, I was like, well, t- tell me about Lee. Like, who's this guy? You know, what's his deal? And she's, I think she summed him up by saying he's sort of like uh, a Jeff Bridges of the spiritual world. And when I talked to him, I got that vibe. He, you know, he's, he's, he's a cattle rancher, among other things. And he, he founded a, a recovery center called the Ranch Recovery Center um, in Tennessee and Malibu back in the day. And, and he's just kind of been in this really interesting dance, his own very singular individual dance about recovery and the soul and the spirit and just, you know, sort of like a dance I'm doing just about how do we, how do we navigate this world and how do we do that in a way that, that makes sense. And he's doing it in his own way. So 
I think you'll enjoy this conversation. It was, it was also one of those things like we had scheduled it multiple times and it just kept not happening because like he lives in a rural place too. And the first time we were going to talk, they were having these like thunderstorms since the, the internet electricity was cutting out. The next time we were talking, I was in Boulder, Utah and my internet and everything was just cutting out. So it just it kept killing the conversation. And we finally like found a time we were both in major cities <laughs> and could do it. So we did it. And I think you'll enjoy it. This is my conversation with Lee McCormick. Well, good. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know this is probably like our fourth attempt. We've both been in from rural places and that has its issues. I was I was dealing with like snow in late May and internet dropping out and all sorts of crap. So I'm glad we're getting a chance to to talk. Yo. Yeah. So we are connected through my partner Marissa, uh Rada Wepner, and you guys I know have done retreats out in Mexico at I'm gonna say this probably wrong. Teo Tia Tuquan. Teo Teotihuacan. Teotihuacan. Yes. Yeah. I know you're doing another one soon this summer. And I want to I want to ask you about that. It's kind of like the work you do and how you got into it. Um, but I think it would probably be good if you could just give a quick background if possible, just sort of where you're coming from and uh, just sort of bring us up to date a little bit. Because I want to talk about... Uh, sort of this 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 work you're interested in and sort of the state of like, you know, kind of healing work in general. And I, I kind of, I'm in the same world. So I like to kind of get into like where we see our blind spots and pitfalls and things like that. But I don't want to get too into the weeds until people just have a little bio about, about you. Yeah. yeah. So you want me to, to... Yeah, well, tell me a little bit about like um, how you got to be where you are now. You don't have to go to the whole thing, but it, I know a little bit about your path with recovery and you got into, uh, you opened a couple of treatment centers and somehow that morphed into more of a spiritual approach, a holistic approach. Yeah. So, um, I lived, I lived, a have lived a pretty interesting, eclectic kind of, I don't know, a lot of people would say undisciplined, you know, not normal kind of life. Um, the best kind. Well, it's the one I've lived. You know, it is what it is. So I grew up in in Florida on the beach. My family homesteaded down there in the 1800s. We had a family ranch that was like five miles from the ocean. Um, there was a cattle ranch and a uh, a hunting place. Um, it was like a five thousand acre place, so it was pretty big. And I grew up in that world between the beach and in the woods which was was really um, important to me. Um, having a relationship to the natural world has always been my anchor point for being in this world and in this life. Um, and then growing up in the, you know, in the 70s, um, in the 60s and 70s, I, of course, grew up around drugs, you know, the, the, the pot scene and then in the late later on in the 70s the whole cocaine thing and the colombians and 
all of that happening. Um, right. I also grew up playing music. I started playing guitar when I was 13. My mom bought me a guitar. Um, and music became another real connecting point to me. Um, my life has always been about basically aspects of my heart. I've never been able to stick with anything that I didn't have a passion for. Um, I I never was really good at buying into the official story of what we're supposed to do here in order to be good enough. I was, yes, you know, the matrix indoctrination failed on me. Um, and so I've started playing music. And when I went to college, I went to college in Durango, Colorado, um, out of high school and started playing music in bars, you know, in little saloons and stuff in the Rockies. Um, and went to school for a year and then quit and played music, went on the road, ended up going back home to Florida, started playing music there, you know, partying a lot, which was just came with the territory um, and put a band together, moved to Nashville in 79, um, spent three years on the road all the time, opening shows for people. Um, just having a, a, an amazing time, you know, work with Waylon Jennings people, um, work with some amazing artists and writers, Guy Clark and Steve Young, and just a yeah. very cool crew of people. Um, you know, again, we certainly did our share of, as we used to call it in Nashville, roaring. So just partying. Um, I got tired of that. I got tired of being on the road. I really got to where I missed my connection to, you know, I was living in Nashville. I wasn't around a ranch or a farm or the ocean. Um, got married, um, actually got married just kind of out of cultural stuff. Like, okay, well, marriage was just one of those things you do. My first wife was great and we probably had no business getting married. Um, but we stayed married for 12 years and all during this time, those old behaviors, you know, the old cocaine snorting partying stuff, it got a little better, but it never went away. Uh, we had two daughters that was on me, not on her. She was, she was, she did not have the tendencies that I had around that kind of stuff. Um, our marriage ended up blowing up. My behaviors got worse. You know, my, I guess you can call it my addiction issues got worse and I just kind of turned into a wild man um, and ended up checking myself into a treatment center at 40. Um, that was a huge experience for me that I went to a treatment program out in Arizona and that experience really revealed to me something I had no awareness of at all that there's a whole backside to our being human. It's like the flip side of the coin of the way we present in our culture, you know, that we're the greatest and we're the best. And if you have the right car and a nice house and a good job and your kids go to the right schools um, and you belong to the club, that, you know, your life is perfect and fulfilling and wonderful and you should be grateful and happy. And of course, when you get into a treatment program, the truth comes out of what's going on behind the the closed doors and the good families all around mm -hmm. America. Um, and that was so compelling to me because it legitimized 
my lifelong feeling that our culture was really quite fraudulent, um, that there was something just not, not honest about it. Um, you know, it's, it was something and it always bugged me. I never could put my finger, finger on it. Um, and, and I was always resistant to joining in on the, you know, on the collective culture or, or being indoctrinated into the matrix, as I call it, you know, so I went to treatment, I dealt with those issues. I had this big wake up call that was way beyond my name's Lee and I'm an addict. I never really subscribed to that. I I was willing to say my name's Lee and I'm miserable and insane, um, but I wasn't interested in defining myself by another cultural label. And I didn't know that's what it was, but it just didn't feel true to me. My name's Lee. I'm a human being, and I had created an addiction for myself not knowing any better, um, mm-hmm. which is just all an energetic. An addiction is just an energetic pattern. Um, it doesn't change the essence of what we are and it overwhelms the quality of our life, you know, and our decision-making ability. Um, so I got out of treatment. Um, I still played music. I was in the cattle business, um, in Tennessee. I bought a ranch, actually me and my, my stepdad had bought a ranch in Tennessee, um, back in the eighties after I'd quit playing music on the road and I was in the cattle business, went to treatment, came home and realized that a whole aspect of our healing journey is, uh, is from my point of view, irrevocably connected to our human relationship to the natural world, to the earth, to the water, to the weather, you know, to, to the living body of life that we're a part of and that we humans have separated ourselves out from our relationships to creation. And we've given all our faith and all our attention to the human made up virtual reality world that is our culture. And we've done that at a great expense to ourselves because we lose balance when we, when we lose our relationship to the natural world and to that groundedness, you know, the natural world is also kind of the front for the spirit world, <laughs> you know. Um, I like that. Yeah, I mean, it is a manifestation of the spirit realm. The physical world is a manifestation of the spirit realm, the natural physical world. Um, and so I created a treatment center, started a treatment program called The Ranch um, two years after I had gone to treatment. And The Ranch, over four or five years, became a super respected, very cool, healing-focused treatment program, as opposed to um, a programming addictions treatment program, you know, where you come in, you're taught, your name is, you're a this, here's your diagnosis, here's the label, this label defines you, and now we're going to teach you the coping mechanisms to live life as a good recovering addict or alcoholic or codependent or anorexic or whatever. So rather than define people by their behaviors, the ranch held a place that you're a human being and you're coming to us out of balance and your life is in crisis. um, And we're here to help you sort out whatever presenting issues are going on with you so that you might recover a soulful, deep faith and relationship to yourself again and to life again as the basis of 
of your your relationship to life. You know, rather than the culture dictating who and what you are, we want you to rediscover for yourself who and what you are. That's interesting. So one thing I wanted to ask you about was like the traditional 12-step model. And I've done a little bit of look into this that I know it's enormously helpful for a lot of people, but I also heard that statistically it's actually not that effective. And then there's things like uh, sex addiction, for instance, which you'll meet some people who say it's sort of an identification with that uh, diagnosis as a way of maybe being able to blame something for choices they've made in their life versus other people and models might say, well, a lot of times that doesn't, it's not in a DSM, for instance, that doesn't exist. And it, let's just talk about like why you made those choices and maybe the trauma that led to it and that sort of thing, as opposed to calling it a disease. But I kind of want to ask you about 12 step in general and what your thoughts are on it. You know, the 12 step program, I think you have to, you have to come back to the foundation of what, what Bill Wilson wrote and created. And the 12 step program was created to be a fellowship of people suffering from, you know, the issues of alcoholism. Okay. And being a fellowship, it was a place for people to come together to support one another, to create a community and to practice working their way through the steps. Um, it was not intended to be nor created to be the basis of a treatment center experience. It's a fellowship, um, Community. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and it has supported a lot of people. The issues I think largely that have come up around the 12 step program is the nature of how, how we humans tend to want to attach to the things that have helped us or support us. And we want to basically make gods out of them. You know, the 12 step program is a practice, not unlike Buddhism as a practice. It's a fellowship that, that calls together a community of mutual support and reflection to the benefit of everyone involved. Um, it was not created to be a God. And because there's such insecurity and so much fear in, um, ingrained in us in this world and in life and in our culture, you know, we tend to give our power away to those things that have helped us. And a lot of people have given their power away to the rooms, to the 12-step program. And they say, well, you know, if not by the grace of God and the 12 steps, I wouldn't be here today. Well, that's yeah. not that's not true. If not by the grace of God, if you believe in God, nothing would be here today. Um, <laughs> so to me, the 12 steps are a great tool. The rooms can be an effective tool. And I also think it's not something that you give your faith to. I think it's something that you use to support yourself in recovering faith in yourself. And that's not what happens. We humans create these dogmas. And then we say, you know, unless unless we really unravel ourselves and are directed to that recovery is about recovering faith and trust in yourself, then we tend to give our faith away to something outside of us. Well, and, let me ask you, let me ask you this, though, because one of the steps, isn't it sort of saying like, you know, I give myself essentially over to a higher power because I'm not able to control something. And 
do you feel like that's sort of a simplistic way of just saying like, I give myself over to my higher self or my soul, or <clears throat> is that a necessary step to just sort of say, I'm not in control at, to, to be on that 12 step path? Because, you know, I, I think any of the, I, I think there's a whole lot of ways to get through, to go through that door. There is no one size fits all as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think when I checked myself into the treatment center, I was clearly out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, the addiction that I had created for myself, when it called, I answered. Now, not always, you know, if I got the craving to go get high, I didn't always write then, go get high. But within a couple of days, typically I'm going to, I'm going to create the opportunity for me to go out and get high. Um, our relationship to the patterns that we create in our life typically becomes one of two things. Either our patterns own us if we don't have a deeper, more abiding awareness of the cause and effect in our life, of an awareness of our responsibility to ourself and how we make our choices and the cause and effect of our choices. So either our 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 patterns our beliefs end up owning us or we own them. And an addiction is literally when one of your one of the patterns that you create in your life holds more energy than you have available to to say no. It's, you just you just conf- I heard you conflate beliefs and patterns. Do you see those to be the same thing? <clears throat> well, you know, I derive beliefs from the things that I give my attention to. Belief yeah. follows attention. That's uh-huh. one of the old Toltec terms. Yeah, so, you know, my belief system, the belief system that I had as a kid growing up and as a young adult was the direct result of the education that I received. It was a direct result of the the faith, you know, the, the church that I went to. It was a result, <clears throat> excuse me, of my family connection and the beliefs of my family. So my beliefs were inherited from the world around me. Okay. Wow. And I, I gave my attention to all those things because that's what we're directed to do. Like the term, you know, give me your attention. Give me your attention. Give me your attention. So all of these institutions and legacies that we're born into are vying for our attention. And then we're more or less programmed into a way of seeing ourselves and seeing the world based on the culture and the legacy that we were born into, the legacy that we inherited. So my beliefs were derived from that that, um, immersion into the world that I was born into. Now, that's more like a nurture versus an innate sort of like that's what you inherited, as you said. And do you see that also something you can you can work with and and choose and you're actively kind of choosing your beliefs from day to day? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think once you wake up a little bit, I mean, naturally, remember when we're remember when you were a teenager and somebody told you something or taught you something somewhere and you just innately said, Nah, I don't buy it. (laughs) That's not true. Right. And then you're told that you're a, you know, you're, you're, um, you're just being an adolescent or you're oppositionally defiant. That's, that's one of the clinical terms for it. Um, there comes a point, like after I went to treatment that I was really introduced to this 
perspective that, you know what, I'm not my beliefs. And my beliefs actually are my responsibility. My beliefs are not responsible for me. I am responsible for the beliefs that I hold. Mm -hmm. And my beliefs had become like a filter that I viewed the world through. I saw the world and the world was, was transposed and subjected immediately and automatically to all the judgments and opinions that were interwoven into my belief system. What's you, behind your beliefs for you? My consciousness, mm -hmm. my awareness. Mm -hmm. um, and yet I didn't live my, I didn't live my relationship to life based in my awareness. I lived my relationship to life based in my beliefs and my opinions. If I had, you know, and, and consequently, when we live based in our beliefs, we also have this innate need to be right. That's why there's so much defending of beliefs. You know, people are willing to go to war over whose interpretation of the story of God is correct. Um, we're willing to, to go to war over the belief that if I don't control oil, the oil in the Middle East, um, the whole world will melt down and America will become some, I don't know, something, right? So we invest a lot of faith in our beliefs. And once we invest faith into our beliefs, we tend to hold those beliefs as though they're actually some kind of a sacred doctrine. We lose the perspective, if we ever had it, that I am not my beliefs and that my beliefs are not responsible for me. I am responsible for what I hold as my belief system. You're right, because when we when we sort of uh, challenge someone's belief system, especially if it's something they've invested perhaps their entire life in, uh, it's it's their sense of identity that we're challenging, and it's sort of this natural pushback to be like, "Well, you're you're asking me to second guess maybe something I've given decades and decades of belief to, and that's that's going to be a big deal for people." And you see them naturally just say, "That's a big ask," and it takes like a lot of energy to break down those walls for people to be willing to even say, maybe there's another way of looking at this, or maybe I can put those beliefs down and see this sort of universality of just who I am behind that. That's a, it's a powerful yeah, thing. It's, well, it's a big deal. And again, you know, what we keep running into is the fact that there's so much fear woven into the fabric of our relationship to life. So if I'm going to consider questioning my beliefs, then I'm going to have to be willing to accept that maybe my beliefs are not absolutely true. Maybe my beliefs are just my beliefs. Maybe they're wrong if we want to go there, right? Well, if my value in life is based in me believing the right things and having subscribed to all of the cultural values that I was taught are right and true and correct. And then I've invested my faith in all of those cultural values. And I've assimilated all of that into my belief system. And my belief system is the story that I tell that gives me value in the world I'm living in, right? Because I've done everything correctly, according to the, the book of rules of our culture, 
that is what gives me value. The unspoken side of that is that I don't really have value. There's no innate value to me. Value must be earned according to the cultural rules or the religious rules, as though the creator created me with no real value and put me in the world to prove that I have worth and to prove that I'm worthy of life, which when you really look at that is completely insane. <laughs> like the creator doesn't really know what the creator's doing, but the culture has it all figured out. And so my first loyalty is actually to being compliant to the culture so I can be good enough. Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah. It, it makes me think that a lot of times for people to change then their beliefs, it's predicated with crisis. And in that sense, you know, crisis or trauma, it's almost like from a soul perspective is the gift we're given in order to be able to transform out of those beliefs and grow and see ourselves. Yeah, well, I would agree with that. It's all about the, the point of view that we hold around it. You know, our suffering, which, is, you know, trauma is an aspect of suffering. Our suffering can be, we can be victims to our suffering and it can be a curse in our life or our suffering can be the invitation from life that finally got us to pay attention and to question, why am I doing what I'm doing? What's really going on here? Yeah, it probably is the only way, really, right? I mean, I'm sure you've seen that most people only make those changes in their life when they're, in a, in a sense, forced to from addiction, divorce, bankruptcy, you know, near-death experiences. It, it takes sometimes a stiff hit of karma for us to to change. Well, it takes a lot to, to crack the spell. I mean, our culture, our culture basically casts a spell over us, and then we pick up, then we learn how to do it to ourselves. And so, you know, we humans are casting spells all the time from the point of view of our beliefs. Um, we're casting spells on ourselves and on each other. Um, and, you know, again, the suffering thing, suffering is something I call a blessing curse. That if you assume the victim point of view and a victim's orientation, which is the way of our culture, that people are labeled as victims. You know, if you were molested or you had a serious trauma or you went off to war and had PTSD or you have some, you know, some kind of a serious trauma, then the culture will label you as a victim. And you go to a therapist and the therapist says, yeah, it's terrible. I mean, you're a victim of this happening to you. Well, is that calling someone a victim is one thing if it is a way of identifying an experience. It's something else entirely if you take it on as an identity. If I take Indeed. on victimization as an identity, I am aligning myself with my suffering and giving myself all the justification I need for that to become a, 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 con a continuous thread in my life. And that the beliefs and the reactions that evolve out of that trauma that happened in the past, I begin to look for those things everywhere because that's congruent with the belief that I'm holding that, number one, you'll come to conclusions like life is not safe or men are not safe or, um, you know, the, uh, all Muslims are wrong and bad because, you know, I was blown up in a, in a Jeep in Saudi Arabia fighting over oil and they are the bad guys. I mean, it's, the mind takes our experiences and spins webs of stories and explanation out of it. And then when we attach identities to it as victim, as perpetrator, as this alcoholic, addict, 
you know, as we attach those those labels to it, we then cast a spell on ourselves because we we give our faith to those beliefs that we've created. And once we give our faith to it, it holds a lot of power and sway in our life. And then it becomes a filter that we see our entire reality through. Well, the truth yeah. is that suffering, if you flip the coin from being a victim to the blessing side or the, from the curse to the blessing, it was my suffering and the heartbreak in my life that led me to the opportunity to really take my whole life apart and question it all and and say, you know, what is really true here? And that was the the doorway that allowed me to realize, honestly, there's way more freedom in being wrong than there is in being right. Mm. Being wrong opens a doorway to all kinds of possibilities. Being right tends to shut the door on it because we okay. want to attach to our being right. That's the gift, the gift of wrong. Uh, tell me a bit about how a guy from from Florida ends up somehow identifying with these Toltec traditions and doing retreats in Mexico, and then weave that into a little bit talking about how some of these Toltec uh, methods that you mentioned, they translate into our modern life for, as you put, waking up in a sense. Yeah, see, I think recovery would be way better off if if we if we said you know recovery is the end of the invitation to wake up in your life. Um, okay, so on a on a mystical note, <laughs> the night that I was born, the moon was tracked right over the top of Teotihuacan. I found that out from an astrologer, which I thought was kind of funny. You know, uh, astrology is really cool, but uh, I'm not. I'm not big into it, but I was like, he said, well, of course you, you found your way to Teotihuacan on the night of your birth. The moon traveled directly over Teotihuacan in Mexico city. There you go. Like, well, okay. That's cool. Um, when I was in early recovery, as you call it, you know, um, I got inspired and was reading anything I could get my hands on about life and perspectives. You know, we had bookstores. There were still bookstores everywhere in the 90s. Um, and I went into a bookstore and found a copy of The Four Agreements, Miguel Ruiz's book. And when I read that book, his whole point of view, it just like my whole body um, resonated with it. Yeah, it was a it was a total felt sense like, oh, my God, I get it. I totally get it. This feels so correct to me. Um, and I looked up Miguel and I found a friend of mine that lived in San Diego that had gone to see Miguel speak. Um, she sent me a flyer for a journey to Mexico to Teotihuacan. Um, and I was just like, I'm, I'm going to do this. Um, my deal with the universe after I had gotten out of that treatment center in the 90s, my deal with God was, listen, I don't know what's going on here, really. Like, I know I don't know anything. <laughs> um, and if you'll bring me the the opportunities for me to figure out what the hell I'm doing here, I'll say yes to them. And boy, did, did a bunch of stuff ever start coming my way. So that was one of them. And I, I went that. on that trip to Mexico. And mm -hmm. I had 
you know, one of the singular most powerful experiences of my life the first time I got to tail. Um, and I just, I felt at home there like I hadn't felt at home, you know, maybe anywhere in this lifetime. I was so comfortable there and it was, and, and I've never left consequently. So, you know, 20 years later, we have the dreaming house, the compound that, that I started with my Mexican family, um, with Alberto and Veronica Hernandez Contla. Um, and I've been going back and forth to Teo three or four times a year for the last 20 years. And it just, you know, it's, it's my place of, it's, it's my spirit place. Um, and the Toltec teachings, the legacy of the Toltecs was so compelling to me. Literally, the simple interpretation of the word Toltec, meaning artist of the spirit. Like, if you just sit with that, you know. Yeah, what a great phrase. Yeah. Artist and that life is a great living art installation. Life is the fabric. And we are the artists that through consciousness, intent, awareness, practice, love, we are creating with each of our individual lives the gift that we would offer back to life for the opportunity to be here. We are the artists of the spirit, and we're here to convey the truth of our heart and soul in this physical world, this realm of the tonal, the tonal. In the Toltec, in the Toltec perception, there is the frequency band and realm of the tonal, which is the physical world. And then behind that is the frequencies of the spirit world that's known as the Nawal. Um, and just literally the interpretations of the Toltecs and the practices and the beauty and the, the, the attention to detail and the integrity of learning and sitting with and being witness to the nuance of cause and effect in life. And how when we do this and we get that, how many different perspectives are there on that one interaction? Not looking for the right way, but being a, a being a witness to um, and being in, in, I guess you could say, like in grace with the mystery of life as it as we're creating it and as it is unfolding. Say that last phrase again, the mist, the grace. I like that phrase. What was it? Yeah, like the we're we're living with the mystery and the grace of how we are creating life and how life unfolds before yes. us and with us. Yeah, as ourselves as artists, I, I, there's a idea I, I used to think about too that is right in line with that. This idea that like the tapestry of our existence is this giant art piece think of it like this huge painting and we're all just sort of you know doing our little brush stroke to create this painting but it is part of this larger work that is almost inconceivable maybe like on a psychedelic you get a sense of or a deep meditation you kind of feel the unification of it all but we're all part of it and there is sort of a beautiful design to it like we're all co-painters in a way even though we don't realize it but that our choices that we make each each step along the way is important. That's like that's like the brush strokes that we choose to make. But we're not just victims to this 
you know, like this art thing unfolding. It's like, no, we each, we each play a role. Uh, and perhaps there's a destiny to what that, that whole piece and what that picture is going to look like or as it can infinitely unfolds. But somehow the choices that we make day to day, moment to moment, internally and externally, they really matter. And that sort of that's that is the purpose. That's where the rubber meets the road of our soul's journey. And I love that because it's, as you said, it's less of a victim mentality where we're just responding and reacting to everything around us. It's like, well, things are happening around us, but we're interacting with, with it, with those choices that we make. Yeah, well, I, I think that's beautifully said, man. And it, it, the victim mentality is really insidious. It yeah. really disempowers us. It cuts our legs out from under us. Um, and it becomes enticing because it provides an excuse to live as less than. It's really poisonous, man. It's really poisonous. And when you flip the perspective, all of a sudden you realize, oh, my God, you know, that was an invitation to pay attention. And, yes, a lot of our experiences in this life are awful. I mean, humans, we can, we can be horrible creatures to one another and to ourselves. You know, we have free will, clearly. And we're 100% responsible for how we respond to life. I'm 100% responsible for the choices that I made that made the mess of my life that led me to a treatment center. I was not a victim of anything. If I was a victim, I was a victim of the the poor nature of the way I made my choices. But the truth is, I never had any, I never developed or was taught a a witnessing relationship to the cause and effect in my life. I saw everything as being personal. Everything was personal. If a good day happened, it's because, you know, life is great and everything's wonderful. And the next day, if something awful happened, it's because life sucks and it's not fair. Well, life is not not fair. Life is life. Life is cause and effect. The nature of our nature to judge everything is a completely skewed relationship with life. And I don't believe judgment, as we humans know it, exists anywhere in the universe beyond the mind of man. I think it is a uniquely bizarre aspect of the mind of man. It's a very interesting phenomenon that we would dare to judge life as good, bad, right, wrong, when if you shift your perspective to simply cause and effect, that if you do this, you get that, um, it, 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 opens, it opens the opportunity to realize that, wait a minute, if an awful thing happened to me at one point in my life, and I didn't have any awareness of the fact that, you know what, it was just an awful thing that happened at that point in time, and yet because of the nature of energy and the nature of trauma, and the nature of how how we respond to those experiences. And that's something we learn culturally. We're not guilty of anything. But we're not taught that if you have an awful experience, that you should come together and find a way to clean and clear and heal that energy and release that experience. And that may take, it may take years. It may be a matter of weeks. I don't know. The time frame is not so important. What's important is that there is an awareness that how we respond to our life experiences determines the quality of how we will move through our life from that point forward. And that's largely what the way I view recovery work and healing work and trauma work is that we're helping people unravel 
how they have adapted and adopted and and integrated their life's experiences into their energetic field, into their emotional body, into their mind, and help them come into, as the Buddhists would say, help them find a balance and a right relationship to this experience of being human rather than a judgment and fear-based relationship to our mm-hmm. experience being human. Yeah, and that's a fundamental shift. And it sounds like, you know, that, that absolutely is the foundation of sort of right livelihood and, and living with grace as we move through all these things. It It's such a strange time that we live where we're being asked to navigate a space culturally, technologically, uh, that is so crazy and fast, whether it's the political landscape or uh, the devices and social media and everything we're using, the amount of information coming at us. Uh, more than ever, we need to kind of have those basics and the foundation very clear, as you're saying about like, well, you know, what's affecting the way I feel essentially and the choices that I make. And we all come from different forms of trauma, some of them quite acute and dramatic, but and and they have a very powerful, powerful influence on the way we make choices in our lives. But I guess you're kind of saying we need to bring light to that and compassion and there's this element of of sort of spirit and also very grounded choice that reflects how we how we're going to you know walk through this this wild time that we're in. Uh, it seems like everything's being magnified, doesn't it? Oh, I mean yeah, and in some ways it literally is. You know, in a sense like if something happens, whatever the worst thing that happens on earth, it's literally magnified in the news to the whole planet instantly. And it's like we just we globally now are connected in a way we never were before, and that's a huge magnification. Yeah, it really is. You know, I I tend to I tend to relate like a whole culture or a whole species. I I relate it back to my experience as an individual because I think we humans tend to function. We function collectively in the same way that we function as an individual. So what I know about the waking up process or the recovery process is that you say I lived the first 40 years of my life with very little awareness um, beyond the particular cultural points of view and religious points of view that I was taught as a kid. So I lived the first 40 years based in that perception and those beliefs. Then a crisis happened and I ended up going into a treatment center, which was really an intervention on my version of reality. That's really what that was for me. (laughs) And that's what I took it. That's, that's where I went with this, that intervention on my version and story of reality allowed me the opportunity to begin to question everything and take everything apart. I didn't understand that at the time, but that's in hindsight, that's what happened. Well, look at our culture. Like clearly the humans are insane. I mean, collectively we're nuts. And there's all this angst and anger and fear and greed and power over and, you know, destruction and pollution and blah, 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 all this stuff going on. It's being magnified and like, what's, what, what, what level of crisis is it going to require to get the humanity collectively to step back and go, what the fuck are we doing? 
You know what? Like that's what happened to me when I got on that plane and flew to Arizona and checked in that treatment center. I was like, you know what? I don't know what the fuck is going on. I am losing my shit. I am so miserable. I'm so tired of this. I have no idea how to how to even begin to deal with with what's happening in my life at this moment. I need help. And so I got on a plane and flew to Tucson and I didn't even know what that might look like. I had no idea whatsoever. I'd never known anybody that was sober. I didn't know what AA was. I didn't know any of that. I just knew I was in like this existential crisis of life. Well, where are we as a collective, as humanity, as a culture of the United States? At what point do we realize that this magnification is really life giving us an opportunity to, to see how crazy we are? But we're locked into if we're not right, then we're wrong. And if we're wrong, we're bad. And if we're bad, we have no value. And we have to be punished. Yeah, it's it does come down at the end of the day to the individual and and working through our own steps to make choices in our own lives that are going to reverberate out into the world. I, I mean, there are lots and lots of us on this planet um, who see the crisis. It's just what's difficult is sort of creating some kind of collective energy that's convincing enough for things to really change in a way that's now more the mainstream and there are interests working against us quite actively primarily financial corporate interests based in profit that it's they're working hard to sort of keep the status quo and we're going down kicking and screaming as we work into this change i mean let me just ask you this question are do you feel hopeful because then in, undoubtedly, there is a rising tide of change. I mean, this conversation is part of that. And there is there is a big energy from a lot of people looking for answers and help and change. And how do you feel personally about the future? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, on one hand, I think the humans are doomed. <laughs> and, and on the other hand, I think life is such a fantastic, wild bizarre flow of of whatever is really going on here i don't have a clue what's really going on here i just live as as cool a relationship as i can live because i love loving and i love creating and so i do the things that feel good to me and feel right to me in a heart soul sense you know i don't know about the humans i don't know you know, what I see, like what you spoke to, um, it's kind of like if you want to call it the good guys and the bad guys, it's like the bad guys are so well organized <laughs> and, and, and they control all the structures and everything, and they're really organized. Meanwhile, the good guys, we're still all factioned out here. You know, you've got your Buddhist over here and your your sane Christians over here and, you know, your Hindus over here. Well, what the hell? You know, you, you, like I, I've been involved in in ceremony for 20 years, right? So, you know, there's different versions, for instance, of sweat lodges, of, you know, the Lakota called the Nipi. Well, you meet some, some traditional people, native people, ceremonial people. Well, they're adamant that the ceremony has to be done this way. Mm-hmm. And that if you lead ceremony, you have to do it this way or you're wrong and you're bad. And I'm like, dude, 
that's the same way of thinking of Monsanto deciding that they're going to keep selling Roundup. They don't give a damn what effect it has. It's like if we can't move beyond the judgment mind and start coming into a collective of realizing that we're all we're all of the light and we're all here to try and bring grace and creativity and value and and sacredness back to our relationship of light and that you know we're all going to be far better served if we can bring all the healing ways and the connections to creator and mystery and and imagination and creativity if we can all just come together and let go of our need to be right and we can share from our heart and our spirit um together then then who knows the human the humans might have a chance hmm. um but if it's got to be the right way you know and if we're going to keep fighting over whose story of god is correct and i think we're baked i think <laughs> you know there's going to be some massive calamity which would be pretty simple to happen these days and then what's left will resurrect us something new it's happened before so this podcast is called 10 laws and it, it it's sort of riffing off a song of mine called 10 laws where my friend talks about this hunter gatherers code of 10 that he sort of uses as a set of stars to like keep his keep his ship of life sailing straight so to speak and i was curious if for yourself like you know what are those those basic things that kind of you figured out work for you or is there something simple you bring into your life that's kind of like you find how it helps keep your own ship sailing straight or something? Because sometimes people find resonance in what other people figured out for themselves to kind of make things work. Yeah. Um, man, I'm such a, I'm kind of a bizarre dude. I've always been such a loner um, in life. But one of the foundations to me is that for me to engage in something, it's got to feel right as opposed to just be a good idea. Like it has to feel right. And, and I don't know how to explain that other than, you know, I realize that my feelings are connected to the spirit world and that's where I get my hits. I don't, I don't so much get hits in a, you know, in a thought pattern, I get hits in a feeling. Um, so it's got to feel right. Um, to me and you know the the old basis of you know treat people the way you want to be treated and and be respectful i i i continuously am reminding myself to be respectful of each individual's not only right but each individual's need to make their decisions for themselves because they're the one that is responsible for the outcome of their choices i'm not and no other program or no other system or no other religion is responsible for an individual's making their choices in their life. So respect each individual's right to choose, and I say need to choose for themselves, because that's the only way we wake up, is owning that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know... Uh, I don't know. I'm not a guy that has a whole lot of rules. I <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of caveats. I'm like, God, I love life. I, the things I love, I love. And I try and live in relationship to the things that I love and the people that I love. And beyond that, I want to create together. 
well, what else is there to do, right? I mean, I love that, as you said, because there, there aren't there aren't a lot of rules, and it is just about uh, we're engendering a feeling anyway, as opposed to something we think up and some idea we have. Uh, it all comes down to how it resonates in the heart. You sort of what you know, you know, and. Uh, and I love that you told me that you don't know what's going on because nobody does. And anyone who does, that's when my red flags go up of like, oh, really? <laughs> you think you have it figured out because this is a mystery and that's why it's called the mystery. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's, it would be so fantastic if we had a reemergence of, of mystery schools. Mm, yes. Uh, which sort of what, that's what music is, right? And art in a sense. But uh, we're dancing around the mystery. Yeah, we are. Well, you know, I, I know you guys have had some interactions with with Ram Dass. You know, I, I can only imagine that that he just that, it, that these days that he he would just laugh at yeah. you know a, some doctrine that that tells you how the universe was formed. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay, that's cool. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I took uh, an astronomy class in college, which I actually really, really loved. I remember one of the test questions was describe the universe in the first like 10 to the negative 15th seconds. And because a lot happened, so to speak. And it was just hilarious that that's even, it's also amazing that there can even be a theory of like how all that happened. And my favorite line, line of Terrence McKenna is he says, you know, science essentially is saying about the Big Bang and all of the scientific method and paradigm Give us one miracle being the Big Bang, that everything came out of nothing for no reason instantaneously. If you give us that miracle, we're cool. We can run with it and we'll give you the rest of science. But we do need that one miracle. And uh, it's important to remember that some things we just can't explain. We just don't know. Oh, no. It's, we'd be way better off if we just gave a lot more attention to the cause and effect in the present moment and gave a whole lot less attention to believe in ourselves. Mm. Well, I love that. I think that's a beautiful place to wrap things up and sort of encapsulate our discussion. And I like that about personal choice and belief and just loving each other, telling the truth. Yeah. And respecting each other's choices, man. You know, respect is a, is an amazing energy, true respect Mm. with no judgment about it one way or the other. You know, Mm. it's, it's, it changes things. People will open up to you when you meet them from a place of true respect. Um, that's what I've learned in the treatment business, you know, working with, with all these sufferings of humanity for 20 years. If I meet, if we meet clients from a place of respect, they'll step into that experience. If you meet them from a place of we know and we're going to teach you how it is, they never really lay their defenses down. And why should they? You know, so it's. We'll transform the world when we can all just sit um, from a place of respect, you know, and hold space with one another and 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 learn by cause and effect um, and get the hell out, get out of our mind, get out of the hell of our mind and all that judgment and allow ourselves to see, you know, from the eyes of the heart and the spirit. I love that. <clears throat> so, Lee, where can people find you and your work and this upcoming retreat and so forth? The journey to Teotihuacan with Marissa is in July. Um, it's at spiritrecovery.com. Um, 
Our last book is called The Heart Reconnection Guidebook. Um, it's a collective that I co-wrote with a, a lady I've written with before, and then several other people contributed. The Heart Reconnection Guidebook's on Amazon, or you can order it at your bookstore. Um, but all of that stuff is at spiritrecovery.com. And our, our uh, mental health addictions recovery healing center in Nashville is integrativelifecenter.com. Okay. Well, I'll put that in the show notes. And uh, I'm glad this finally worked out. I hope to meet you in person someday if Mexico or somewhere else. And yeah, dude, I'd love to come see uh, Idaho. Honestly. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Or uh, you'd also love it down southern Utah in my neck of the woods. We do a retreat down there that's just just all about the landscape. It's an incredible, incredible spiritual place. Yeah, well, when I lived in Durango, I used to play music over in, in uh, southeastern, like Monticello, Blanding, out there in the kind of around the edges of the, the reservation. Yeah, um, you know, like cowboys out there in reservations. I love it. Yeah, well, that was my deal, man. I played cowboy <laughs> bars <laughs> and Indian bars. <laughs> any, any chicken wire between you and the audience ever? A, a couple times, actually, in the 70s, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I haven't had that honor yet, but maybe someday soon. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, your your music's not heard in honky-tonks very often. <laughs> well, maybe one day I'll, I'll build a set where I'll put a bunch of chicken wire between me and the audience just so we, it'll be like a meta contemporary art thing. People will be confused, like, what's happening? You know, you know that um, would be a pretty funny video, right? I'll give them things to throw, like flowers or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's the chicken wire. <laughs> I love it. Well, thanks for chatting, man. Um, yeah, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate the opportunity. Have a good one. Well, there you go. Thanks, Lee. Thanks for giving me some time. And thanks for having the patience to just make it work, make us be able to find a time where we could actually talk. Um, I might see you in Mexico if you're going to join them. If not, I hope to see you on the road or see you at... Uh, and he's, he's forced retreat in, in Southern Utah in the fall. Thank you for taking a moment to review this podcast. If you go to like the available episode screen, if you're on Apple Podcasts and you scroll down, you can just hit the five-star thing. That's super easy. Or hit that little blue write a review thing and just type in a few sentences. Uh, it, makes, it makes a big difference. Let me know what you like. Let me know which of the guided meditations I released you like best or you're resonating with because I might want to, I'm going to put one or two of those out on Spotify and different platforms. So you're kind of helping me be the lab. And let me know which ones are, are the most effective for you. And uh, thank you for sharing this kind of stuff on social media and just being part of the community. It means a lot because of you, because you listen. I keep doing what I do. And, uh, we all keep walking our walk. So in that vein, keep walking your walk. Don't take any shit, but when you do, shall we say, do it with grace. Please, do it with grace. May the forest be with you. There was a guy, he was a surfer from, from California. Long hair, all dressed in... Indian clothes, beard, beads, 
I figured that's the person I would go to India with. He said that he was going to take a walking trip in India. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. So we started in our walking trip. My feet burned. He said, my guru is up in the hills. So I decided to go up to the mountains with him. I didn't believe in gurus. The night before, we were to arrive at his groom. We had stayed at the house, and I got up to go to the bathroom. And I went outside, and the stars were magnificent. And it was the first time I thought about my mother. She had died six months before. She was a soul. an old man with a 
blanket of Rosa is over. And my mind said to me, this is a cult. I won't go any farther. So the old man pointed at me. <laughs> And he said, You, you were thinking about your mother last night. It was a miracle. I didn't tell anybody about that. Just me. He's privy to my mind. My mind was blown by that miracle. My gosh, he knows my mind. with my 